Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and right next to me is Karen Milliken. Woo! Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Hey, Karen, have you ever been in a temple before? Okay, listen, there was this one time where I went out to a reconstruction of the tabernacle. Ooh, nice. Where was that? In Israel. In Israel, yeah. And then they actually do it in a small town around here in, in Texas, and I drag my whole community group there. <laughs> <laughs> It was awesome. <laughs> that's uh, that well, number one. That's awesome. Number two. That sounds pretty nerdy. It was. I don't know that anybody enjoyed it as much as I did, but I was very interested. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. What were what was like one or two of the takeaways that you had from being inside the tabernacle? One, it's much more colorful. Mm-hmm. Than you think mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. in your head. I don't know. It was like black and white for yeah. some reason. Probably because in like Sunday school periodicals <laughs> and stuff, they would that's be true. black and white. Yeah. yeah. No, it's very bright and colorful. Yeah. Too, it's much smaller yeah. than you think it's yep. gonna be. Totally. Yeah. I'm like, God is really big, but he built a very small house. He, he fits in this really <laughs> small space. Yeah. <laughs> very profound takeaways, if I do say so myself. It totally is. Yeah, that'll preach. <laughs> anyway, we're gonna continue our conversation with Dr. Greg Beale on the temple and just look at how again this imagery shows up throughout all of scripture and how that's so critical for us to understand more fully what God is doing in the world. You guys enjoy this episode. We're back this week with Dr. Greg Beal from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And we're going to continue our conversation on uh, the temple and that imagery in the Bible. But first, Greg, hey, thanks for being with us again. We really appreciate it. Good to be here. So last week, we ended off just talking about what temples were in the ancient world and their significance in the life of the people in the ancient world and how they interacted with the deity, but then also how the temple in the Hebrew mindset really formed a foundation for a context that the Bible is written out of. And so for now, Greg, why don't you just walk us through, like somebody opens Genesis one and two, like my son did the other night. He's seven years old. He's got his little NIV readers edition and he's reading Genesis one out loud. Right. And of course I'm listening to him read and I'm like, Oh, this connects to this and that. But a lot of people will just open it up and be like, wait a minute, what? How is temple found here? So walk us through how Genesis 1 and 2 is unpacking a lot of temple imagery. Well, first of all, the climax of Genesis chapter 1 is, in terms of the creation, is the creation of humanity on day 6. And then, mm. of course, the God rests on day 7. But on day 6... Adam and Eve are said to be in the image of God. And Genesis 2 then goes on and talks about God placing Adam in a garden, verse 15, for example. And and it goes on and, and talks about a number of things that when you look at them carefully, they resemble in a number of ways Israel's later temples. And so you begin to look at this and you begin to discern that, well, Eden wasn't just a garden. It was a garden temple and Adam was the first priest. There's no statement in Genesis two, by the way, that Eden is a temple or a sanctuary. Right. And so you might miss that 
But if you read carefully, you begin to see connections with the later temple. So if it feels like a temple and it smells like a temple <laughs> and it tastes like a temple, then maybe it's a temple. Yeah, right. And then Ezekiel puts the icing on the temple cake. He actually says in chapter 28 that in Eden were the sanctuaries of God. And so the likelihood here is that Genesis 1, Adam is created to be an image. What do you do with images in the ancient Near East? Well, you put them in temples. Yeah. Except in this case, this image is not worshipped. He is a worshiper, and he is a living image of God. You have an image of God in the ancient Near Eastern temples, but in the Holy of Holies there is no image, but you have the priest serving in the outer second section of the holy place, and he is said to be the image of the living God. And we could go into why chapter 2 is reflecting Eden as a temple and Adam as a priest. You know, we went to Ezekiel, but how about just within chapter 2? And chapter 2 and 115, for example, presents Adam, I think, as a priest. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden. Mm -hmm. And the reason was, to cultivate it and to keep it. Now, those words cultivate and keep, I mentioned them earlier, literally is serve and keep or serve and guard. Now, if you did a word study on those two words, which a lot of readers might not do, but if you do that word study in Hebrew, you find that a number of times, around 10 times, it refers to Israel serving and keeping God's commandments or worshiping God. Now, about five or six times, it refers to priests mm -hmm. serving in the temple and guarding the temple from unclean things coming into the temple. So I think what we find here is at the very least, Adam is an Israelite worshiper, but more probably, I think, because he's said to be an image. And there are other aspects of chapter two that I think reflect that the garden is a temple, that Adam is the first priest. And what further perhaps indicates that is that the two seraphim, the two angelic figures, when Adam's cast out of the garden, they guard the way to that eastern entrance of the garden. And I think it's not by coincidence that in Israel's temple, in the Holy of Holies, those two angelic figures on either side of the Ark of the Covenant, I think that probably reflects those angelic figures in mm. the Likewise, the lampstand in Israel's temple in the holy place probably reflects the tree of life yeah. in the Garden of Eden. It's not by accident that Israel's later temple was on a mountain, had water flowing down from it, and had an eastern entrance. Yeah. Eden was a mountain. A lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. Ezekiel 28 says it was on a mountain. Water flowed down from it, which you can tell in Genesis 2, and it had an eastern-facing front. Yeah. And so there are a number of things cumulatively that point to Eden as a temple and Adam as a priest. Yeah. So that's how Genesis 1 and 2 fit in. Adam's the image, and he's to be placed in the temple in chapter 2. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting that you have 1 and 2, and then obviously in 3, everything goes totally sideways. You have then these table of nations and genealogies that lead up to uh, this anticlimactic Genesis 11, where... Instead of doing what the creator required of his images to fill the earth, everybody keeps coming back together, like in the same spot. 
now they're trying to build up into the heavens uh, this tower, and yet God confuses their languages and then does what they failed to do and pushes them out, like scatters them. Yeah. Then you obviously have the rest of the book of Genesis where Yahweh taps Abraham on the shoulder and is like, hey, dude, you know, you want to help me out on this? And so you have the rest of Genesis, which takes us through the patriarchs. And how, how do we see for them, walk us through the patriarchs to the Exodus and how temple imagery shows up there? How would they have thought about that? Well, first of all, let me just uh, spin off of a comment you made about God confusing their tongues. Mm-hmm. As we said, uh, Israel's holy places where God's presence came down. And what they're trying to do is create their own temple. There's evidence that ziggurats, which is probably something like what they were building, were at the top was a little dwelling for the God. I think mm-hmm. they were trying to create their way to God instead of letting God come down in uh, the way he has chosen. Mm -hmm. But the confusion of the tongues is really significant because when you get to Acts chapter 2, there are several allusions back to the Tower of Babel, not only with tongues. By the way, it's a reversal. Now you have tongues bringing about unification. Right, yeah. And you have a spreading out instead of a coming together. In fact, the descent of the tongues of fire is temple imagery. And in earliest Judaism, as they understood Isaiah 30, God would descend in tongues of fire. Mm -hmm. And uh, what he's doing in in Acts 2 is he's descending. Now he's not building an architectural temple. His actual tabernacling presence is descending from heaven and building people into the temple there. The tongues of fire resting on them are his temple presence from heaven. And the rest of the book of Acts is there to spread out and increase that temple by bringing more images into the temple to reflect God. Mm -hmm. So I I couldn't pass that connection up. Yeah, no. Now, let me go back to your question. How does this temple idea from Genesis 1 to 3 develop in the patriarchs? And how do we see that? Because you don't seem to have temples until Israel builds its tabernacle after they leave Egypt, which is really the first temple. That's important to remember that that Israel's temple that Solomon built is but a concretization mm-hmm. of the moving tabernacle. Right. So with the patriarchs, it's very interesting. What you find is, first of all, uh, I mentioned, I think, earlier that Genesis one twenty eight, the commission to Adam, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, etc. That commission is mentioned throughout the Bible and especially throughout the narratives about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what you find is often what they'll do is they'll go up to a mountain and God appears to them. And thirdly, they pitch a tent, literally, In the Greek Old Testament, it's translated a tabernacle. And then fourthly, they build altars Mm -hmm. and worship God. And fifthly, the place where these activities occur is often located at Bethel, which is translated the house House of God. God. By the way, I'll add a sixth element. Often there are trees involved Mm -hmm. in these little altar building scenes. Now, woven together with that sixfold 
pattern of the patriarchs going to mountains and building altars is Genesis 1, 28 is interwoven with it. And I think what's going on is that the patriarchs are building small temples Hmm. that are really reflecting the idea that the Adamic commission is carried on, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are actually Adam figures. The very fact that the commission is plied to them from Genesis 1.28 shows that they are Adam figures. So that commission is carried on through them. These little temples point to the bigger temple, well, to the tabernacle, and then the bigger temple in Jerusalem, so that when David actually builds the temple uh, in that narrative, he actually those those five patterns that I mentioned are mentioned uh, and applied to David building and laying the foundation for the Temple of Solomon, which shows, I think, that uh, the patriarchs were involved in what, what I call little temple building. Do you think the patriarchs saw themselves as a corporate Adam? I think they saw themselves as Adam figures and representing Israel. I think then, then you find in Genesis, well, in Exodus 1 and elsewhere, even in Exodus 1, uh, Genesis 1.28 is applied to Israel three times. So, so then Israel becomes a corporate Adam figure. They're to carry on the commission yeah, that good. the patriarchs begin to carry on individually from Adam. And so the Adamic commission is applied to them. So they're, they're corporate Adam figures. Now, you have to understand they're not exactly like Adam. I mean, mm-hmm. Adam was in a, an unfallen environment. They're now in fallen environments. So that's why you have to get sacrificed to cover the sin in these temples. But nevertheless, they're carrying on this commission of Adam. So they are image bearers, and their mission is to go outward. Many people don't see this in the Old Testament, but I think that was the commission, as I think reflected in Exodus 19.6, when, when God calls Israel a kingdom of priests. They were to be mediators between God and the dark world. And one of the ways they were to do that was through temple building. In fact, in Solomon's dedication of the temple again and again, you'll find it refers to the nations who are to look toward this temple and pray. Yeah, that's good. So that gets us to Israel's temple, because when David lays the foundation, he goes through the same five patterns as the patriarchs did, which clearly identifies their building as temple building, and that connects us with Eden, the patriarchal temple building, and then Israel's tabernacle and temple. Yeah, that's good. That's really helpful context. When you rightly see Eden as the first temple and Adam as the first priest and you understand the commission that they, that he was given in Genesis 128, you do begin to see that pattern as you move forward. And so even seeing that being applied to the nation of Israel to be called a kingdom of priests makes a lot more sense now. You're like, Oh, that's where that came from. Right. A lot of ways American evangelicalism would, would interpret that is, Hey, go share your faith. And it's not that that's wrong, but it's just a lot more full. It's fuller than that. It's a continuation of what the commission that Adam was given in the garden. Right. To cultivate, to expand. Yeah. Um, Not just to get more converts, but I mean, there's all kinds of huge implications for this, for everything. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the first great commission is Genesis 128, Matthew 28. Is another commission. It's a re- yeah, restatement, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's almost like, hey, my image, my image was in the garden and he was functioning, but then he started to dysfunction. Yeah. And so now I'm coming back to reanimate that image so he can function properly again, and then I'm going to recommission him. 
Right. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and, and elsewhere throughout the Old Testament, for example, when Isaiah prophesies about end-time Israel, he says, you will be called the priest of the Lord. Yeah. You'll be spoken yeah. of as ministers of our God. Yeah. And that mission is carried on. Now, what happens is, uh, how, how is that fulfilled? Well, Jesus is the true temple and the true priest, mm. and we become true priests in him. And so if you look at Matthew 28 carefully, part of the commission given to the patriarchs is actually given there. You know, you're right in at the end of Matthew 28, where Jesus is standing in a position of authority, you know, where he says it's not just authority on the earth, but also the authority in the heavens and the earth, like this full cosmic authority. And you have this priest king who where Adam and the patriarchs and the nation of Israel failed, this one has succeeded. And he's standing in a position of authority and is now restating Genesis one twenty eight to go, hey, go, you know, the, the phrase in Greek is pontata ethne, the, to go to all of the nations to bring them in. And you see, you know, going back to last week where we we're talking about kind of the tripartite division of the temple between the, the outer court, which later it's expanded, right? It's expanded not just the outer court, but to the court of the Gentiles. Now you have this court of the Gentiles being the Gentiles coming in where Jesus is now commissioning his reanimated images to go to all the nations to be my witness to these people that a new creation has come and um, I'm making this new. And that's the thing about, I mean, there's so much temple imagery there from 114 and John where he makes he tabernacles among us and then he speaks over the temple in the gospels to really judge the temple of what it had become through the abuses and the, and the long history of Yahweh and his people where they continue to fail over and over and over again until finally he's, he's using language of my body is the temple. It's going to be destroyed and raised back up, rebuilt to the point where Jesus is on the Mount of Olives and he's looking, he's lamenting over Jerusalem and he's judging the temple. Yeah, I argue that, and uh, I mean, I argue this in my book that the Great Commission is partly an allusion back to the last verse of Second Chronicles, which in the Hebrew Bible is the last verse of the Hebrew Bible, right? And it's canonical arrangement. Mm-hmm. And there, Cyrus says, "The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Mm-hmm. He's appointed me to build a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Yeah, whoever there is among you of all his people." Go up, yep, and the Lord be with him. Yeah, build a temple. So you know, in the patriarchs in the continuation of the Genesis one twenty eight and the temple building theme, God begins to say, "I will be with you." Mm-hmm. So He will carry this out, and so you even get that. But what I wanted to add was the word "temple" isn't mentioned mm-hmm. in the Matthew twenty eight commission, but in the allusion to Second Chronicles, where it says He's appointed me to build a house, I think. But that's parallel with make disciples. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. how does he? How do we create the temple? Making image bearers. Right, right. Paul grabs that language, and it's like you all, all of you are being built up into this temple of which Christ Himself is the cornerstone. Yes. By the way, I had to ask myself. That's Ephesians two. That's organic language. Yep. Why is it that Paul says 
you are growing mm-hmm. into a temple of the Lord. I think that organic language is echoing the organic language of the temple from Eden. Right. Eden is expanding. Exactly. Yep. Yep. I mean, I think this is probably the most fun book I've ever written because my wife's office was in the basement where my study was back <laughs> in Wheaton when I wrote the book. And about every other day, I'd I just let out a shout and say, oh, I can't believe this. <laughs> the kind of things yeah, that yeah, I was yeah. finding. But once once you get a key, yeah. and if it's really a key that unlocks, it begins to shed more light on other passages that you hadn't thought about before. Yeah, right. In theology, we call that a hermeneutical key, a key of interpretative insight. From an epistemological standpoint, that's one of the ways you know that you're moving into deeper reality when you come across something like this, so many more doors begin to open up. Yeah. And yeah, it's really fascinating. So I think there's so much stuff here that you have Jesus as the new temple pronouncing judgment on the old temple where they failed, he's going to succeed. But then ironically, not so ironically, um, maybe in what's been foreshadowed the whole time, You have the priest king as the temple, and then there's a tree, Uh, this tree imagery that you see, and then the tree of life in the garden and all this stuff. But then the priest king, instead of being in a garden among the trees, he's actually descends down into a common criminal's death and is on a tree. And then he dies, which everybody's like, what? Like the Messiah is not supposed to die. But when he dies, the veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place is gone. It tears from top to bottom. And then you have resurrection and you have this Acts passage where now, like you said, the, the tongues of fire are resting on people. The presence of God is now shifting from a localized place in Jerusalem to these reanimated images. So, like, I, I just summarized all of that, but just unpack that for us. What, um, why is that so significant? As I mentioned to you, I think that the tearing of the curtain represents, in part, that the temple no longer, the Holy of Holy is no longer the container for God. And and we had that prophesied way back in Isaiah 66, where, you know, he said, who can build a house for me? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that rhetorical question is nobody can build a house for me in the end times, because my presence will spread everywhere. Remember, he says in Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. He's speaking to the Holy of Holies there. Where then is a house you could build for me and a place that I may rest? My hand has made all these things. And then he goes on and says what he's going to build. He says, but to this one I will look, to him who was humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. I think Mm -hmm. he's speaking now of people who will inhabit his temple, indeed compose his temple in the new heavens and the new earth. Mm -hmm. Now, going back to the tearing of the curtain, it's interesting that in one of the gospel narratives that when that curtain is torn, one of the Roman guards actually declares this is the son of God. Yeah. Now, the point of that is 
the tearing of the curtain there is connected with the gospel going to the Gentiles. You immediately get expansion there, an element of expansion. And furthermore, the tearing of that curtain, interestingly, in the Old Testament, we know that on the curtain were pictured uh, the stars of heaven, which enhanced the, the second aspect of the cosmos, right. the visible heaven. Uh, Josephus, who you mentioned earlier in conversation, a first century Jew, lived during the time of Jesus and was a priest, had apparently seen this curtain. He said on it were not only stars, but the sun and the moon. Mm -hmm. And so the tearing of that curtain is very significant because it shows the old creation is beginning to be destroyed and the new creation is emerging, which will occur through the resurrection of Christ. Mm. So that's part of what we get there. Of course, we find in John 2 that uh, Jesus says, tear down this temple and I'll raise it in three days. That's why I said you can't keep a good temple man down. He just <laughs> goes up in resurrection yeah. and continues the uh, repristinization of the end time temple. He's not, by the way, he's not like a temple. He really is the temple. Yeah, right. And right. so that's really important because to be the true temple is not to be an architectural structure. Yeah, right. It is to be the beginning fulfillment of what the presence of God in that structure was about. It pointed to God's presence coming out of that structure. And Jesus is the beginning of that. Hmm. And then uh, we are built on on his foundation. Yeah, you talk about this, this veil tearing away and it's and the presence of God breaking out of the Holy of Holies. But we see that same imagery where John in his vision has a very explicit description of this cube that is coming down and resting on, you know, this new Jerusalem. Yeah. And in his description of that in Revelation, he says, and I did not see a temple. So walk us through that imagery of what's going on there at the end of the book. Well, the fuller text, let me, let me complete what you mentioned, where he says, I saw no temple in it. And the rest of the verse is, because, why didn't he <laughs> yeah. see there was a temple in it? That is, there's no architectural temple in it. Right. But because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Mm. So we, we don't want to think that the temple ended. The true form of the temple continues in the expanded presence of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the true temple. It's everything to which the old, imperfect, physical temple pointed to. So that's when it says there's no temple, there's no old temple. Yep. Because now everything it pointed to uh, has come, and there is the true temple, and that's the new heavens and earth in which God's presence dwells in every nook and cranny. Yep. His special revelatory presence. It's all holy of holies now. So the, there's no need for an archetype. The real thing has come. Exactly. Yeah, that's good. Now, again, this was inaugurated with Jesus, and Revelation sees the consummation of it mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. But, you know, some people, and this is debatable, especially in certain evangelical circles, is there going to be a temple built again? Mm -hmm. Some people speculate, you know, there's a special society of Israelites uh, that even have a room of furniture for the temple and so on and so on. And so some people think it'll be built in the time of the tribulation or at least in the millennium, although there will be sacrificial worship again. For myself, I think that that's reversing the type. Once you get a fulfillment of a foreshadowing type, in other words, the Old Testament physical temple foreshadowed Christ as the temple. 
So the real thing has come. And once you get a fulfillment of a foreshadowing type in the New Testament from the old, you don't later go back to the type again. It's sort of like when I was uh, doing my first year graduate work in England, uh, I was not married, but I was writing letters to my wife-to-be, Dorinda, and you know, we were trying to decide what we thought about each other. And I remember uh, every time I'd get a letter, I'd look at a picture that she had given me. So, I, in fact, I remember her brother was in the picture. I had to cut him out pretty quickly. <laughs> and Peace out, I didn't dude. want him looking over her <laughs> yeah, shoulder right. but, at any rate. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I would, uh, I had a colleague from a former school who actually hugged the picture of the woman he was writing. So, I may have done that. I don't remember. But now we've been married over 40 years. And if I was sitting in our den and I was hugging and kissing the picture, my wife would probably call our pastor and say, you know, Greg's yeah, been studying Revelation it. too much. Yeah, I don't go back to the picture now that the substance has come. Right. That's what I think is going on with the temple. And the, the expectation here in Revelation 21 is in the new heavens and the new earth, the consummation of what Jesus and the church have begun. Right. And if you look toward Eden, like start at the beginning again, there wasn't a temple there. God was dwelling among his people. He was walking among them. There wasn't a need for it. And so you get to the end and yet again, there's not necessarily a need for it because God is dwelling among his people as he had always intended to. And so even hearing y'all talk through this imagery throughout the biblical narrative from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation Hopefully our our listeners can track with y'all to see, oh, it is in the creation story. Oh, it is in the patriarchs. Oh, it is in the tabernacle. And then with David and Solomon, we get to the New Testament and Jesus himself is the temple. And then the presence of God moves to his people. And that's the age that we're living in now. And we turn to the end of the story and we see that once again, God will dwell among his people. What do we do with that? Help us understand how this understanding of this temple imagery should change the way that we think about things today? Well, I think we can draw a line from Adam to Israel that they both failed. Adam decisively failed. He was a representative for humanity. Israel also failed in their fulfillment of the commission to fill the earth with God's presence and to fulfill Genesis 1:28. And so Jesus comes and he's the one to begin to fulfill that. And one indication early on in the gospels that that was the case is the temptation in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, where uh, Luke's narrative right before the first verse of the temptation in Luke 4 is the genealogy, which is turned upside down, which ends up with ultimately Adam, the son of God. So that's who Jesus is related to. And then all of a sudden, we have this temptation. Now, the temptation clearly is reversing. Jesus is is presented as true Israel here, Uh, not like Israel. He's true Israel. And what happens is that he, if you look at the quotations that he gives in response to Satan, they're quotations of Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. For example, a man will not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Well, All these are what he says to Satan are responses that God gives to Israel when they failed in their temptations. Mm. The point is that Jesus is succeeding. And by the way, these temptations are similar to also not just Israel's, but to Adam's temptation of food, the temptation of pride. And so Jesus here is he now, you know, one of the functions of priest is to know the Bible. 
if you study priests, they were to be teachers of the word. They were to know the word. And that's why I believe Adam and Eve fell. Because uh, if you look at the narrative in Genesis 3, Eve misquotes yeah. what God said that's right. in, in Genesis 2.16 in a number of ways. She makes him more restrictive. Yeah, I mean, for example, she says, don't touch it. God yep. never said that. Yeah, that's right. She says, we eat of it, we'll die. Mm-hmm. Well, God didn't say that. Mm-hmm. He said, you'll die, die. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll surely die. The word die is used twice by right. God. And by the way, it's used twice by Satan. Mm-hmm. He knows the scriptures. Yep. And then she downplays the privilege. She says, we can eat of the tree. Well, now God said any tree. Yeah. So there are a number of ways that that's misquoted, and it is not by accident that immediately after the quotation, sin comes. Because I think when the Word of God is removed, sin results. Mm-hmm. So really what I'm saying here is there is an already and not yet fall. It begins with Eve, and then it's consummated with Adam. Now, Adam is blamed because he is the chief priest in the garden. Oh, by the way, Ezekiel 28 presents him as the chief priest. He has all these jewels on his body that in Ezekiel 28 are the same jewels as the chief priest. So he's the chief priest in the garden. And what happened with Eve ultimately is his fault. He either did not preserve the word that he communicated to her, or he had communicated it wrongly. And at the very least, it's likely, I think, as many commentators think, that he was standing right there when the devil is conversing with her, and he doesn't correct anything. In fact, he was to subdue, mm-hmm. according to Genesis one twenty eight, And as a priest, he was to kick out anything unclean. He just lets it in, and the fall occurs. Jesus is the opposite. He knows the Word of God, and he wards off the devil by the Word of God. In fact, he defeats the devil by the Word of God, because right after the temptation, what does he do? He enters into the promised land from the wilderness, and he begins casting out demons. Uh, he's, he's defeated the king of the demons, and so he casts out the demons. So then we find that it's not by accident that Paul talks about how important it is to know the Bible. The point is, is that now that we are in Christ, we are priests, we are to know the Bible and whatever level we're at to teach the Bible. So that's the first application. The second application is that as priests, remember, all Israel were priests. Exodus 19.6, you are a kingdom of priests, the whole nation, not just the priests within it. They were to be mediators between God and dark humanity. We now, in Christ as the priest, we're little priests, and we are to be mediators between God and unbelieving humanity. And as people become Christians, as they're built into the church, they're built into the temple, and the temple expands. We begin to fulfill that commission. But we are really mediatorial priest, i.e., that's what an evangelist is. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the ways that we are to communicate the word is through sacrifice. That's what priests did. They sacrificed in the Old Testament. Well, how do we sacrifice? Well, Romans 12, 1 says, yeah. I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is your reasonable service of worship. So we don't sacrifice animals as priests. We sacrifice ourselves. Yeah, good. And how do we do that? Well, it may be through persecution. It may be through sacrificing yourself for your family in very mundane ways. Yep. It could be, I know, an accountant who uh, worked for a car dealership. 
the boss said, I want you to doctor up the accounting book so we can make more money. He said, well, I can't do that. Boss said, well, I know you can't, but I want you to. And he said, well, I can't do it. And he ended up getting fired. So he, he sacrificed himself on the altar of his business. Mm -hmm. And whether the boss became a believer, I don't know. But by doing this again and again, in whatever situation, as we sacrifice ourselves as priests, we are communicating the gospel. As Paul says, in my weakness, there is the strength, the presence, and the glory of God. And so that's a whole theology of, of priesthood. It's huge. And it is one of the main instruments by which we communicate the gospel, by which we expand the temple. Yeah. Now, the last thing that priests do, among the significant things that come to my mind, is prayer. Jesus says, and so does Isaiah chapter 56, that the temple was to be a place of prayer for the Gentiles. And so we are to be people of prayer about all things, but certainly people who are praying that our mediatorial priestly function, especially in sacrifice, would be effective. Mm -hmm. When the world looks upon us and we're sacrificing ourselves in strange ways, when people see us being joyful and faithful in situations of trial, whether it's death or other forms of suffering, whether it's illness or loss of a job, whatever it may be, when the world sees us faithful and joyful, they say, what's going on here? Yeah, right. That's weird. Yeah. Well, it's supernatural because we're priests in the temple. Yeah. Uh, it's really helpful to hear you put us back into the story, because even listening over the last couple of weeks, I think it would be really easy to kind of take a back seat and be like, yeah, I see that in scripture. Yeah, I see that in their lives. Yeah, I see that with that person. But really appreciate you flipping that and reminding us like, no, this is our story. This is part of who we are as God's people, as image bearers, as a kingdom of priests. Yeah. And, and the story, the whole story is helping us to live into the reality that the more you understand this, the more you're able to go, well, wait a minute. As a reanimated image of God, I am able through the power of the Holy Spirit because like Matthew 28, 20 says, he is with me always. He's with us always. Amen. And so we are empowered as image bearers to be ambassadors, to continue to cultivate the earth so that the entire earth will be filled with the presence and the glory of God. That's the, the vision that we get in Revelation 21 and 22. And so... If you're listening to this, then you just need to know, like, what you do matters. The way you lead your family, the way you execute your business, the way you interact with coworkers and neighbors, in everything that you do, it's not just about trying to get people to adhere to a set of propositions so that they can go to heaven when they die somewhere else. It's about the kingdom of God coming here and now. It's about the presence of God pushing out over the entire planet. And we are God's vehicles for that. The people he has raised up from the dust of the ground to make us in his image and to go, hey, partner with me in this ongoing creative activity as the Satan is defeated and the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. And so that's the story that we live in. And I don't know anything that's more practical than that. It should inform everything you do. This is why the first point about a priest knowing the word, the more we're immersed in the word, 
the more conscious we're going to be of who we are. That's right. Good. Who are we in the biblical redemptive historical story? We are priests in the temple, not like priest, not like the temple. We really are yeah. part of the fulfillment of the true temple prophesied in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And so we need to remember that. And as we remember that, for example, that we're images in the temple, that we're we should be reflecting God. And the only way that can occur is to be in his word. In fact, remember that after talking about as priests, we sacrifice ourselves in Romans 12, 1 verse 2 of Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you, the mind's got to be renewed. Yeah, right. And and that's through the word. Uh, and the purpose of it is that we might uh, prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable. Perfect. So the only way for this to get down into the nook and crannies of our practical everyday living is quite simply to be immersed in the word as mm-hmm. much as possible. Yeah. That may sound very simple, but it all of a sudden takes on a lot of redemptive historical significance when you put that as being part of the role of a priest that Christ fulfilled, that Adam should have fulfilled. Let's say I'm standing in line at the grocery store and an elderly woman is fumbling through a purse for money, can't find it. She's there five minutes. And there's somebody behind me getting mad, and I'm about to get mad. But if I'm thinking rightly, I'm thinking, you know what? I'm a priest in the temple. Yeah, good. I should be reflecting the Lord and his attributes, Mm -hmm. his patience, his grace. And that becomes a mediatorial witness, whether Mm -hmm. by lifestyle or not. And then it's helpful to remember that God is with us when it feels like we can't do it. He is actually the one working in and through us to accomplish his good work. Yeah, that's beautiful. This has been really, really helpful. So thank you so much for your time and helping us understand temple imagery throughout the whole Bible and history of the world and what's to come. So (laughs) it's been really helpful. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks, Greg. We really appreciate it. It's good talking to you both. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. As always, if you liked it, share it, tell your friends. Bye! Peace!